Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, and welcome to another episode of LDS Perspectives Podcast. I am your host for this episode, Stephen Smoot, filling in for Laura Hales, as I sit down and have a conversation with Robin Jensen of the Joseph Smith Papers as we discuss the recently released Volume 4 of the Revelations and Translations series of the Joseph Smith Papers, Book of Abraham and Related Manuscripts. Robin, thank you so much for sitting down and having a conversation with us. It's good to be here. Thank you. Well, before we get into the actual big book here, and there's a lot we can talk about, uh, we would love to know more about you, about your background, and maybe a little bit about the Joseph Smith Papers in general in way of introduction for our listeners who may not know what the Joseph Smith Papers are or aren't too familiar with it. Sure, yeah. This is an important volume, but it fits within a larger project, the Joseph Smith Papers. First, though, a little bit about me. I was born and raised in Utah, served a mission, an LDS mission in uh, the Netherlands. But other than that two-year stint, I've been in Utah my whole life. I uh, met my wife in high school. We uh, rode on on my mission. I came back and we got married. Uh, I have five kids. I became the black sheep of the family by going to Brigham Young University. All of my older siblings went to Utah State University, so going to BYU. I wasn't actually quite sure what I wanted to do with my life. And then I got a job as a research assistant doing Mormon history. And that was kind of my first foray into the history of the church. And my first assignment essentially was to help Ron Walker on his Mountain Meadows Massacre project. So not only was I introduced to LDS history, I was introduced to the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Kind of an unfortunate chapter in, yeah. in, in our history. So, Baptism um, by fire, if you will, yeah, into Mormon exactly. history. I was reading a lot of newspaper accounts of the massacre. It wasn't always a pleasant way to spend an afternoon in the Harold Bailey Library. I got passed around with various professors at the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Latter-day Saint history. I finally ended up with Richard Anderson. And then through a series of events, including kind of an issue of funding, he introduced me to the Joseph Smith Papers, which was then down at BYU at the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute. And so I split my time a little bit with Richard Anderson and then a little bit with the Joseph Smith Papers. So I started as a research assistant with the Joseph Smith Papers. All the while, I was working on my education in, in history. Uh, I got a master's in history at BYU. And right when I graduated with my master's degree, the Joseph Smith Papers moved their operation up to the church history library. And they offered me a full-time job. So it's one of those rare instances where graduating with a master's degree, I got a job in history. Phenomenal. That's great. Yeah, I was very lucky. And I have been with the project ever since. So the project moved to the church history department in 2005. So I've been here now for more than 15 years, which is, or excuse me, more than 10 years. I'm a historian. You do the math. Um, (laughs) So it's crazy to see uh, all the volumes that we've done. Uh, The Joseph Smith Papers is what's called a documentary editing project. Scholars throughout the country, throughout the world, need access to sources and If they don't have to do original research and it's not part of their primary question, then it's much easier to read transcriptions of sources than to fly to various repositories, do research, try to read 19th century handwriting. So it's our job to transcribe and present those documents for other scholars. So essentially, if you will, 
a documentary editing project is the grist to make bread. This is a terrible analogy, but uh, <laughs> for other scholars where they yeah. can use the Joseph Smith papers transcriptions for their own scholars. Sort of the raw materials of doing history, yeah. essentially. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And so we've now published uh, multiple volumes. Uh, the, the project is broken up into six different series. There's a journal series, a history series, a document series, a legal series, an administrative series, and a revelations and translation series. And we are actually wrapping up the project. The final volume should be published around 2022. I have worked uh, on all of the volumes of the Revelations and Translation series. It's been a wonderful opportunity. That's right. Before this, you worked with Royal Skousen on the Book of Mormon Printer's Manuscript, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. That was quite a landmark publication to have uh, the printer's manuscript in its entirety, facsimile images even, uh, available for everybody to look at and study for themselves. Yeah. So most of our volumes of the Joseph Smith Papers present just the transcription. But for the Revelations and Translation series, we publish what's called a facsimile edition. And what that means is that on the left hand uh, of side of a two-page spread, you have an image, and then on the right hand side, you have the transcriptions themselves. So not only can scholars and other users access the transcription, they can look to see at the image themselves. It's it's kind of an unprecedented yeah. uh, look to these these documents. And all these documents as well are online on the Joseph Smith Papers website, from what I understand. And and over time, more documents will be added. Everything that's in the printed volumes will be on the website uh, down the road. Sometimes the the cost of these volumes can be somewhat prohibitive for average readers. It's wonderful that you have the online resources as well. And so between that and these facsimile editions, I mean, Mormon history, students can just eat their heart out. Yes, yeah, Yeah. exactly. So we, we test our success by not how many volumes we're producing, not really even how many scholars have them on their shelves, but how, how well they're being used. Right. So if a scholar is using these, citing them, if they're listed in the bibliographies of mm-hmm. books and whatnot, then we find that a success, whether they're on individual shelves or not. With a prestigious academic pedigree, such as what you just described, working with Ron Walker and Richard Anderson and other great pioneers of Mormon history, I think we'll be in good hands in this episode to, <laughs> to talk about our subject today, which is the Book of Abraham. Appropriate that we have a facsimile edition of the Book of Abraham manuscripts, since uh, when most Latter-day Saints think of the Book of Abraham, they think of these weird pictures in there, facsimiles. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. But before we do that, Robin, was there anything in particular that got you interested in the Book of Abraham manuscripts and in the history of these manuscripts? Was there a specific impetus for your interest, or was there something else? What, What sort of got you into this world of the Book of Abraham and the revelations and translations of Joseph Smith? I think like many people who grew up in the church, I had a few moments of boredom in sacrament meeting, and I opened up scriptures to look at the only pictures, yeah, essentially, right. in the scriptures. And the three facsimiles fascinated me. They were something to look at. They were quite interesting. I had a father and some older siblings who had read some Hugh Nibley and some, yeah. some of the works of farms. So I was interested in not only Book of Abraham, but some of the complexities around it. Uh-huh. And Early on in my college career, I even flirted with the idea of going into ancient history. But it wasn't to be. I went to 19th century religious history, focusing on the church. My interest actually is in the texts themselves, the documents. What do documents tell us about the time in which they're created? My first interest in the book of Abraham from kind of a Mormon history perspective was when uh, I heard that Brian Hauglid and John Gee were working on a project together. That eventually culminated in Brian's work in publishing some of the transcriptions of the Book of Abraham. And he actually asked me to help him with some of that work. And so I kind of dove in head first. It was quite an experience. And then when we looked 
forward in planning on the in the revelations and translation series of the Joseph Smith Papers, we realized we needed a Book of Abraham volume, and I definitely right. wanted to be involved in that because I knew of the complexities. I knew that the manuscripts were not self-apparent as to what they were, or, or some of them were not, and I wanted to really take that the background of kind of a larger Mormon textual study and try to apply that to the Book of Abraham manuscripts. Well, as one who myself did go into ancient history, as opposed to the modern side of things, so yeah. sort of the opposite coin of what you did, <laughs> and having looked now at the new volume here and looking at the manuscripts, I can absolutely say how appreciative I am for the work that you and Brian Hauglin and others have done to help us understand these manuscripts. Because you're right, on the surface, they can be kind of deceptive. You know, yeah. They seem straightforward, but there's actually a lot going underneath the surface of these manuscripts. And yeah. so we're going to hopefully tease out some of these things for our listeners today to sort of orient them towards these manuscripts and uh, help them make sense of it. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe a broader general history of the Book of Abraham? When did the Book of Abraham first get translated? When was it published? When and why did it become scripture? And how has it influenced Latter-day Saint theology today, right? Again, when, when most Latter-day Saints think of the Book of Abraham, they just think of the three pictures. And, yeah. and maybe the, the, the verse in Abraham 3 about we will send them down to prove them herewith, right? Yep. Uh, but, yep. but there's actually a lot going into this uh, Book of Scripture. So could you Absolutely. walk us through its history and its reception amongst Latter-day Saints and its significance today? We don't want this podcast to be three hours long, so uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, yeah. I'll try to be brief. But uh, in 1835, a man by the name of Michael Chandler came into Kirtland, Ohio. That was the headquarters of the church at the time. Michael Chandler had a number of mummies, some fragments of ancient papyri, and he was coming to Kirtland essentially to sell them. Joseph Smith was very interested in them. He and others pooled some resources, purchased these artifacts, and then Joseph Smith immediately began to make sense of them, try to understand what he had. Through that process, he dictated the Book of Abraham text in Kirtland. And then things got in the way. Joseph Smith was a very busy individual. They were working on the Kirtland Temple at the time. There were other things going on. And got, so he got thrown in prison for a little while. Uh, you yeah, know, yeah. Problems like that. <laughs> there, yeah. Were, there were many things going on. So he essentially set the project aside. We actually have multiple references of him wanting to get back to it. When he's in Missouri in 1838, he's building a translating room, apparently, when he's in Nauvoo in the, you know, 1840, 41. There's calls to relieve some of the pressure of Joseph Smith so he can get back to it. It just doesn't happen until 1842. He becomes the editor of the Times and Seasons. That's the church's newspaper. And as editor, he's going to want to supply the newspaper with material. And so he publishes a number of things, including his history. That's where the autobiographical history begins. But he also then publishes for the first time for the church, the uh, Book of Abraham. This is ultimately published in three issues beginning in March of 1842. We published the first section of the Book of Abraham with facsimile one, and then the remainder of the text of the Book of Abraham with facsimile 2. And then the third issue, finally, is facsimile 3. They promise to publish more. It never happens. We, we never get another installment of the Book of Abraham. Yeah, the Book of Abraham just kind of ends very abruptly, yeah. right? Adam is just sort of naming the animals in the garden, and then suddenly it just stops. Yep. And I, yep. I'm sure many people have wondered... Well, why on earth does it just stop here in the middle of the story? And so it sounds like from what you're saying that they had intentions to translate more. Uh, uh, in the in the volume here, you mentioned some sources that suggest that maybe they had translated some that some material that was now missing, unfortunately. So it's kind of a cliffhanger, if you will, a scriptural yeah. cliffhanger. And we kind of get back to the issue of Joseph Smith being busy. That, yeah, that things just kind of take over, um, and he's there's a lot of things on his plate. 
Anyway, so we have this published Book of Abraham. Other individuals following Joseph Smith's death are interested in this text. So we have Franklin D. Richards publishes it essentially as a missionary tract in what's called the Pearl of Great Price. Members of the church will recognize that as the fourth canonized uh, book of scripture. But it wasn't actually canonized until 1880, I believe. Um, To the question of the influence, of course, there's some rich theological understanding from the Book of Abraham. Here we have probably the greatest understanding in printed scripture of the pre-existence. Absolutely. Uh, We have a lot of good things about just kind of the nature of prophets, Abraham himself trying to uh, look for uh, priesthood, what that means. There's a lot of good things in the Book of Abraham that a lot of theologians and others have have commented on and are probably better to comment on than I. uh, Right. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I think the Book of Abraham's influence can sometimes be overlooked. Yeah. Uh, the Book of Mormon obviously stands out as Joseph Smith's sort of preeminent scriptural production, but based on his Nauvoo sermons, we know Joseph Smith was drawing from material on the Book of Abraham in some of his discourses there, and it's influenced our modern theology about, as you said, the pre-existence. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that brief understanding of a very complex history in mind, maybe we can jump into the documents themselves that are presented here in Volume 4, Book of Abraham, and related manuscripts. Well, that's interesting. It's not just the Book of Abraham. There's other manuscripts here, too, and maybe we can talk about that. Can you tell us a little bit about these manuscripts presented in this new volume of the Joseph Smith Papers? When were these manuscripts created? Who were the scribes? And why were these scribes specifically chosen for this project? With the Book of Mormon, of course, most members of the church think of Oliver Cowdery, right, as being the scribe working with Joseph Smith. And Uh, we often forget Emma. Emma Smith, of course, uh, yes, and others. Let's maybe talk a little bit about some of these individuals and the history of these manuscripts. Can you start us out with the earliest step of this project? July 1835, Michael Chandler rolls into town. He brings these mummies and papyri. What happens from there in the first wave of translation? I think sometimes we just jump right into Joseph Smith purchasing this material, trying to understand it, and then Book of Abraham. I I did it myself in my brief introduction. I think, though, we do need to have kind of a bit of a context about why is Joseph Smith interested in this? And then second of all, why on earth are ancient Egyptian artifacts in essentially frontier American 19th century? Right, yeah, it seems kind of out of place. It's very strange. And there's, again, a very long history there as well. But the short version is Napoleon Bonaparte in the late 1700s, early 1800s, invades with an army, but also with a bunch of scholars. It's kind of this interesting thing. They began to essentially pillaging uh, ancient Egyptian artifacts. This actually sparks or renews an interest that Western culture has had with ancient Egypt for a long time. They and others find that you can actually sell these things. There, right. was, a, there yeah. was a big market for this, this kind of stuff. So if you go to any museum in Europe, you'll find a lot of artifacts from this. They were selling a lot of these to museums, private uh, collectors, whatnot. When the European market was a bit flooded, they realized, let's just send them to America. You can sell some Brand artifacts new over there. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So touring mummies uh, were quite popular. Mu- uh, museums in America wanted mummies. It was quite popular. Michael Chandler was kind of following a larger example in America of traveling ancient Egyptian exhibit, essentially. So that's why these artifacts are in Kirtland. Joseph Smith knew from almost the very beginning that God could reveal truth through ancient history. The church was founded from the publication of the Book of Mormon. And what is the Book of Mormon other than an ancient history? An ancient record, right. So Joseph Smith had this pattern that he was producing scripture from the ancient past in some ways. Of course, you have the revelations that were later printed in the Doctrine and Covenants, but you have the Book of Mormon, you have the Joseph Smith translation, his work on the Bible. You have 
Parchment of John, other things, right. where mm-hmm. Joseph Smith is very much interested in the ancient past, and he recognized that the Lord could reveal truth through that ancient past. When papyri come to Kirtland, he's not thinking of showing these off. He's thinking, oh, what truths can be contained right. on these ancient papyri? What does he do? He starts studying them. He starts looking at them. In fact, you have kind of a, this source that says Michael Chandler is showing Joseph Smith the papyri, and Joseph Smith is showing Michael Chandler characters from that he copied from the Golden Plate. Oh, wow, interesting. Yeah. And so there's kind of this comparison of ancient texts. I should back up just a little bit. We, we, I think we all remember the story of the Book of Mormon translation, where Oliver Cowdery wants to translate. Right. He's very interested yeah. in this. And so he tries it with the Lord's permission, and it doesn't work out. And kind of so, hits a dead end there. Yeah, and, and yeah. so he says, what's going on? What's happening? So Joseph Smith dictates a revelation, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially the Lord through Joseph Smith says, Oliver, you thought that this was a simple process. You thought that I'd just give it to you. you got to study this out in your mind. You've got to put in a little bit of effort. And I think that when Joseph Smith approaches the papyri in 1835, he's mindful of this. He's studying right. it out in his mind. He's trying to make sense of the papyri. He's trying to understand what's on the actual records themselves. And so what we have is what I like to call the Egyptian language project, where Joseph Smith and his co-workers, his colleagues, his co-religionists are making copies of the papyri. They make whole pages of copies uh, of characters. They put together what they call alphabet documents. They put together grammar and alphabet volume. They're trying to make sense of not just the hieroglyphs themselves, but the Egyptian language as a linguistic operation. So this kind of makes sense in two contexts, both within Joseph Smith's religious context. He had these revelations saying that he and his fellow brethren should be studying ancient manuscripts and studying ancient languages. But it also works in a broader 19th century European and American context where you have this Egyptomania, as historians often call it, where everybody and their dog essentially is trying to make sense of these mysterious hieroglyphs and these texts and these mummies and so forth. Eventually, Jean-Francois Champollion, the Frenchman, is able to crack the code, but you have others around him at the time that are also trying to work on this. And so it makes sense within that context as well. Yeah, so you have scholars, quote-unquote scholars, though they were scholars of the day, making sense of the hieroglyphs. So you had people hundreds of years before Joseph Smith who published dictionaries of hieroglyphs saying, ah, I figured it out. Here's what it is. They weren't actually doing that. As you say, it wasn't until Champollion and and others kind of figured that out. Speaking of context, Joseph Smith had inherited this cultural understanding of the Egyptian language, not just his fascination with it, but kind of this mystique surrounding the hieroglyphs. This esotericism around it, Yeah, exactly. And so when Joseph Smith is approaching the hieroglyphs, yeah, he's studying it out in his mind, but he's bringing to that study a cultural assumption that he's inherited. He's not up to date on the cutting-edge scholarship uh, that's happening in France. So Champollion and others in France and some in America are understanding that, you know, this is going on. Joseph Smith is very likely not reading French academic literature. (laughs) On Frontier of America. Yes. Okay, so that's a good sort of context to situate how this project begins. And so we have Chandler come in, he has the papyri, they purchase the papyri and the mummies, and then he recruits, from what I understand here in the book, Oliver Cowdery, which makes sense, William Phelps, Warren Parrish, and Frederick G. Williams. They're the principal uh, actors behind this, as you call it, the Egyptian language project. Yeah, and I I should say something about those scribes. So Oliver Cowdery, obvious, he's helped with other... His right-hand man, uh, Yeah, and... uh, You remember early on, he's promised in the Doctrine and Covenants that he will 
bring forth other mm-hmm. ancient records. He's there. W.W. Phelps, William W. Phelps has also been kind of a right-hand man. In fact, each one of those individuals at one point or another acted as clerk, scribe, or otherwise kind of this individual who would put forward text. So W.W. Phelps served as church printer. um, And so we have this cadre of individuals who knew what it took to produce scripture. They had seen Joseph Smith do it. There's no question why Joseph Smith would have chosen these individuals. Great. So we have these, as you say, this cadre of brethren who are working on this project, and they begin in 1835. They have some false starts, you might say. As you mentioned, they have uh, some breaks in the middle here, drama going down in Missouri and Kirtland and so forth. Eventually, though, it gets published, as you say, in 1842 in the Times and Seasons. That's sort of the history behind these sorts of things. But what many listeners and what many readers of the Book of Abraham probably wonder is, do we know anything about how they actually translated these documents? We know, as you say, that they attempted a sort of, if you will, secular understanding, getting caught up in this culture of trying to read Egyptian and other ancient languages with the Egyptian language project. But do we know anything about the sort of revelatory process behind how we got the English text of the Book of Abraham itself. Did Joseph Smith give us any firsthand statements? Did any of his scribes give us any understanding? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, we have very little. Joseph Smith did not leave any statement to the, the mechanics of the translation of the Book of Abraham. The closest thing we have, Warren Parrish served as a clerk, as a scribe to Joseph Smith during the translation. This was in 1835. When he left the church, there was a Kirtland apostasy and and a number of individuals left. Warren Parrish was one of those who had left the church. He wrote this long letter into a local newspaper. Through the letter, you can see he's pretty bitter about Joseph Smith and the church and various aspects of uh, Mormonism at the time. In that letter, he writes about his experience in in publishing or, or translating the Book of Abraham. And he essentially says, I sat by his side and I wrote the Book of Abraham text as Joseph Smith claimed to have received it from heaven. He throws in that claimed or, right. or as yeah. he supposed to have received it from heaven. So you can, you can see that he's yeah bitter against Joseph Smith. Maybe he doesn't believe it anymore. But what we do get from that statement is that at the time, Joseph Smith told his clerk that he was receiving this through inspiration. If there was some other way... Warren Parrish certainly would have said that. Would have known it, Um, right. And so I feel fairly safe in saying that if pressed, Joseph Smith probably would have said the same thing that he would have said with the Book of Mormon translation. And all he said with the Book of Mormon translation is, I translated through the gift and power of God. He was reticent to talk about the actual mechanics. It was really kind of left to others to guess as to how that took place. This raises another interesting question. There are a couple of sources... I believe Wilford Woodruff and Orson Pratt, who mentioned that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim in the translation of the Book of Abraham. That would sort of fit Joseph's modus operandi, if you will. Yeah. We know he utilized translation instruments in the translation of the Book of Mormon, the seer stone and the Nephite interpreters. Uh, what can you say to you know this idea that Joseph as a translator, as a revelator, he uses these sort of divine instruments in his translation. Do we know if he used the Urim and Thummim in the translation of the Book of Abraham? What, what sort of sources do we have on that? Yeah, so that, that actually is a good question. And, and there, there is still, in my mind, a question for the Kirtland period, whether he's using a seer stone or Urim. Thummim. The Orson Pratt might indicate that he is, but he's 
separated from the right. prod, yeah. from the process. He's not there at the time, and the, the source that we have from Orson Pratt is later in his life. Okay. Yeah. The, the best evidence that we do have is Wilford Woodruff. He writes in his contemporary journal that he connected the Urim and Thummim and the translation of the Book of Abraham together. And so it does seem that for at least part of the translation, Joseph Smith is using some sort of instrument. And I think what's interesting to remember is that I actually find past precedents of Joseph Smith's translation useful in looking Mm. to the Book of Abraham. If we look to the translation of the Book of Mormon, for instance, there is not one single way in which Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. We've got him making copies of the Book of Mormon characters. He's trying to involve scholars in some level. Charles Anthon and that whole incident, right? Yep. We, We have him using the interpreters themselves that were with the plates, we also have him using the seer stone that we're not with the play, that, you know, a different object. There is also some evidence that a copy of the King James Bible was involved in some way, that maybe he's using the text from that through inspiration. And then if we look to section 7 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the parchment of John, he apparently is seeing an ancient text through a seer stone, so right. there's not an actual text involved. And then when we look to the Joseph Smith translation, the Bible revision process, seems like Maybe it's just pure revelation that he's receiving some of that. He's definitely using a copy of the King James Bible. Right, uh, we it's ha- his base text. Yeah, yeah. We, have, we have a copy that's marked up and whatnot. What I guess I'm trying to say is that there's really kind of a spectrum here that we can look to Joseph Smith's translation process. So when he sits down and tries to translate the Book of Abraham text, he actually has a myriad of ways in which he could draw upon. So we see him studying it out, but he absolutely could have used a seer stone. He also could have just had inspiration. General impressions um, and inspiration, yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that members of the church need to remember. You and I, we've used this term translation, but that's when we hear translation in more secular term, we think, oh yeah, an individual knows two languages and he's uh, he or she is transferring a text from one language to another. Right, yeah. That's very much an intellectual project process. There might be dictionaries or, or whatnot involved. That's not how Joseph Smith is doing it. The church understood this to be a spiritual process, a revelatory process. To complicate this translation process, I think, helps us understand the Book of Abraham translation process a little bit better. I think that's a really good point that you brought up, and it's a really good point for members of the church to keep in mind when they encounter Joseph Smith using the word translation or translate, more often than not, it seems, it's more synonymous with perhaps revelation or inspiration as opposed to just mechanical one-to-one translations. We understand it. I think the important thing to remember there is I'm a historian. I'm an academic. I look to historical sources to try to reconstruct history. Deity, the spiritual process, revelatory translation, does not leave a documentary record. There's no textual record of Joseph Smith receiving inspiration. I think this is where historians and people of faith need to meet. And sure, people of faith can absolutely pull from historical sources and and writings and whatnot to enrich their faith. But the Book of Abraham, just with the, the Book of Mormon and other scriptures that Joseph Smith produced, is a matter of faith. It's a question of faith. And I, as a scholar, cannot prove one way or the other about the ultimate truthfulness of the Book of Abraham. Right. And I think the Church recently, in their Gospel Topics essay on the translation and historicity of the Book of Abraham, make the same point, where they say, scholarship can only get us so far. We can use history and other academic tools to help us understand this, 
but ultimately members of the church are encouraged to receive a divine witness or testimony through the spirit of the truthfulness of Joseph Smith's records. I think it's also worth pointing out for listeners, uh, along with what you just said, this new sort of uh, understanding or new formulation of translation for Joseph Smith and the early saints, the church has also recognized this possibility with the Book of Abraham. They yeah. say in the Gospel Topics essay, perhaps, as some have argued, we're missing a portion of papyri that the Book of Abraham is on. That's a possibility. But also, they say, it's important to remember that for Joseph Smith, translation was a much more broader category. And so yeah. members of the church should not be too upset or disturbed if uh, they encounter Joseph Smith claiming to translate a text, but modern scholars would perhaps understand the text differently. Or It gets a little messy that way, but there's room for faith, there's room to meet in the middle, and there's room to explore different possibilities as we, as we nuance our faith. Let me be clear. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, it's a matter of faith as a way of sweeping under the rug some right. of the complexities. I think we should definitely address the complexities because they are there. One of the things that uh, I appreciate about the volume that I just worked on is that I have come to understand Joseph Smith as translator better through it. If you think about it, of all of the translations that Joseph Smith underwent, the Book of Abraham, relatively speaking, gives us a richer documentary mm. record. So right. with the Book of Mormon, what do we have? We have the text itself. We have the, the printer's the manuscript, manuscript, the original the manuscript, manuscript right. and the 1830 publication. With the Joseph Smith translation, it's the same thing. We have the texts itself. But with the Book of Abraham, we have Book of Abraham texts, but we also have the papyri. We also have some of this Egyptian language project. Mm -hmm. We have a documentary, a textual record of Joseph Smith trying to make sense of these documents. And I think that rather than being afraid of that, yeah. we should embrace it. We should say, Great. This is where we can understand Joseph Smith as translator. It's sort of a historical sandbox in yeah, a way. Absolutely. To, to absolutely. We have this treasure trove of, of documents, and we can use them to nuance and inform our faith and, uh, and better understand Joseph Smith himself, which yeah. I can't imagine why any Latter-day Saint would object to that, wanting to better understand the prophet and understand his life and, and the works he produced. Yeah. So, and, and there might be some correctives in that process, and that's certainly. okay. I think we as a church need to be comfortable in saying, oh, you know what? I had certain assumptions about Joseph Smith as translator. That in more study, I've realized those assumptions are not right, or I need to revise or nuance those assumptions. And that's okay. That's what being a person of faith means yeah, to, to try to nuance that. Certainly. I think that's wonderful. Let's change gear just a little bit here and, and talk about, since you mentioned the, the papyri and the grammar and alphabet documents and so forth, as you present in the volume here, there seems to be a pretty clear relationship between the Book of Abraham manuscripts, the, the English text that Joseph Smith produced, and the surviving papyri fragments. So, for example, you point out that there are hieratic characters from the papyri in the margins of these early manuscripts of the Book of Abraham. There's been a lot of controversy around this. People have tried to make sense of what this might mean about the translation of the Book of Abraham. I know critics of Joseph Smith have sometimes used this to sort of just dismiss his whole enterprise as, as being fraudulent or misinformed or what have you. Yeah. Can you speak just a little bit how that might inform the translation process? How something like the relationship between the Book of Abraham manuscripts and the papyri may make sense of Joseph Smith's translation process? Process or how we can maybe approach this in a, in a way that better clarifies this. Yeah, and I think this does actually get to the heart of the issue. So we have characters from the papyri that are on the manuscripts of the Book of Abraham. And some would say they're trying to distance the relationship, but the manuscripts themselves seem to imply that one character is being translated by the paragraph of English text in, in the Book of Abraham. And if it's not clear already, those characters are not 
the text right. of the Book of Abraham. The papyri are relatively common funerary texts from ancient Egypt. The surviving papyri do not have the Book of Abraham text on them. And that's been made clear by the church since the 1960s, yep. at least. So yep. that, that's not a controversy, yeah, really. Absolutely. Both Mormons and non-Mormons agree that what the papyri are and what they aren't. Yeah, yeah. So the question of what is the relationship between the papyri and the Book of Abraham text? I think that one way to look at this is that this process of studying something out in your mind, it is not an on-off switch. Hmm. Joseph Smith does not say, okay, I'm going to study things out. I'm going to copy down characters. I'm going to try to make sense of things. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait, Phelps, Cowdery, stop. I'm receiving revelation. Stop what you're doing. Let's move to a totally separate thing, and I'll start dictating this. There's some overflow between the two processes. When I'm talking to members of the church, I sometimes use a hypothetical scenario that I think helps, and I'll give it to you, and you can tell me if it helps also. Imagine a parent of a child. The child is sick, and so the parent is desperate. They want to make this child better. A person of faith is going to involve the Lord in that process, so they pray. But then they realize, well, I can't just pray. I've got to study things out. So they start doing research about nutrition or health or whatnot. Through that research, they are still continually praying. And they receive a clear revelation, a miracle in their mind, an answer to their prayer. They do what that answer to the prayer tells them to do, and the child gets better. It's a miracle. It's great. They later find out that in their researching, uh, either in their online researching or whatever, they looked at bad information, mm-hmm. that it was not right, that there was some quack science or whatever that they were researching. Maybe WebMD isn't the most authoritative <laughs> yeah, place to get yeah. it right. So the question then is, does that inaccurate information that they based their assumptions on invalidate the revelation? Mm-hmm. And I think members of the church will realize, no, it doesn't, that you can approach the revelatory process with faulty assumptions and still get revelation. We have a scripture in the Book of Mormon where the Lord says, I will speak to you according to the matter of your language, mm-hmm. after the manner of your understanding. The Lord is going to work through our cultural assumptions, whether those assumptions are accurate or not. If we as a church have tried to make sense recently, um, well, for a long time, but recently it's kind of been in the news, of seer stones, uh, right, the relationship yeah. of seer stones with the Book of Mormon translation. And I'll just come right up and say it. For me and my upbringing, seer stones are weird. That's not how I was taught to... I think for most people, seer stones are pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. I uh, like seer stones. There's a certain uh, academic interest in them, yeah. but uh, to approach God, my first inclination is not to pick up a rock. Right. That's not yeah. how I was raised, Right. But for Joseph Smith, it was. And the Lord was going to work through that. He was going to meet Joseph Smith halfway. It shouldn't come as any surprise to us that Joseph Smith has certain cultural assumptions about hieroglyphs. He might even think that one hieroglyph might mean multiple words in English. Multiple lines of text that we have in the manuscript. Um, And the Lord might work with that. He might come and say, okay, Joseph, I could tell you exactly how hieroglyphs work, but I'm not going to. I'm going to meet you halfway. And through this process, I'm going to help Mm. you translate this important truth, the text of the Book of Abraham. I think that is a useful way to sort of think about this. Uh, It sounds like kind of what you're saying is not to have people necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. Um, You have Joseph, the inspired seer and revelator and translator, versus Joseph, the amateur linguist, or Joseph, the uh, overly enthusiastic scribbler of ancient languages and so forth, right? And, And even though... There's no real value linguistically to the Egyptian language in these grammar and alphabet documents, which you point out in your uh, introduction to the volume. Modern scholars, including both LDS and non-LDS scholars, will 
don't look to the grammar and alphabet documents to help us better understand the Egyptian language, they nevertheless are still helpful in giving insight into Joseph Smith's revelatory process. They show that here's a man who's very interested in languages, who sincerely believes he has some sort of encounter with the divine through these manuscripts and these languages. And so... And uh, it helps us with his cultural assumptions. Absolutely. What can we learn through this Egyptian language project that helps us understand how Joseph Smith approached uh, the Egyptian language? So talking about the papyri and the grammar and alphabet and so forth, maybe can you tell us a little bit more about the grammar and alphabet documents themselves? I've known about these for a while now. There's been images online, and scholars since Unibly have talked about these documents. But for the first time, sitting down with your new volume of the Joseph Smith Papers and just sort of going cover to cover, I realized just how truly complex these documents are. Yeah. Uh, how there, there's a lot of uh, interrelated and intertextual relationships. There's sort of uh, transmission complications and dictation complications and so forth. Could you sort of distill what these documents are? Can you talk about what they contain? Orient our listeners to these documents who probably they'll just eyes will, their eyes will just glaze over if they were try to look at these. Can you yeah. give us some insight into that? And it is challenging. I would encourage people to go to, you don't even have to have the book. You can go to josephsmithpapers.org and pull up some of these images because the visual representation is pretty important to understand these, these documents. We have what's called the alphabet documents, and these are loose pieces of paper that have multiple columns on that page with characters, the sounds that they assumed those characters made, and then definitions or translations of those characters. So we have three different iterations of those alphabet documents. One in largely in Joseph Smith's handwriting, one largely in Oliver Cowdery's handwriting, and one largely in William W. Phelps's handwriting. So the three of these individuals apparently worked together to try to make sense of this. It doesn't seem like there is a clear urtext or earliest text on which the others are copying. It it seems like kind of a brainstorm session where three people are sitting down, they're trying to make sense of these characters, and they capture them on paper. It's just a a giant list of, of the characters divided into various parts we should be clear that not all of them are Egyptian characters. Um, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so we have apparently some earlier characters that they assumed were Adamic characters that are found Mm -hmm. on the the manuscripts. There's some other characters that have an unknown origin. We don't know whether they're Egyptian or not. And then we have very clear Egyptian characters. From the papyri. From the papyri themselves. So it seems like this is kind of a collection of all the characters that Joseph and his scribes are aware of or or are playing around with, so to speak. Those are all on loose paper. And then what it appears to be is that from that project, they kind of do a reset or they have a revision of their understanding and they create what's called the grammar and alphabet volume. And I say they, there's only one scribe except for a few words that are in uh, Warren Parrish's handwriting. But William W. Phelps is mm. the main scribe of that volume. And it and it is a volume. It's a manuscript ledger volume, essentially, that he fills. There's about 33 pages full of characters, sounds, and texts. And it's a similar uh, format where you've got vertical columns that are full of these characters, the sounds, the English translations. And it's essentially, as best as we can tell, what the title says. There's grammatical elements to it. There's also alphabetic elements to it where they take different characters and try to make sense of them. So that seems to have been part of the, as you say, the studied out in your mind portion. They were attempting 
their own sort of, if you will, secular translation of these documents, to trying to make sense of them. And so why not? Let's create an alphabet and grammar, do the best that we can. And as I said earlier, this isn't totally foreign. We had earlier scholars right, that's right. trying to make sense of the Egyptian language, and they have published, you know, there was a three-volume dictionary of the Egyptian hieroglyphs that well predates Champollion's. This is kind of an academic exercise that we're not familiar with, where they kind of are testing the waters, so to speak, to see if something sticks, if something makes sense. I honestly don't know how much they themselves understood this to be actual translation, mm, whether they whether they actually would have published this and presented it to the world as the definitive text. I, I don't know, but it does seem like they are taking it seriously. This right. is not just kind of a silly exercise on the downtime of, of dictating the Book of Abraham text. I guess the question that naturally arises out of this and that people have wondered about is the relationship between the grammar and alphabet documents and the English text of the Book of Abraham. Yeah. Uh, you mention in your introductory material in the volume that there's clearly some sort of textual dependency between the two. For example, kolob appears in both the grammar and alphabet and in the Book of Abraham, yeah. some of these words and concepts. But there's also independent or non-dependent elements in both the texts. So, so people have wondered, did Joseph Smith translate the Book of Abraham first, and that led to the Egyptian language project? Did they try to crack the Egyptian language first, and that produced the Book of Abraham? What insight can you give us into this uh, relationship between the grammar and alphabet and the Book of Abraham as your research has uncovered? I've thought about this question quite a bit. Yeah. What comes first? And I have thought about this for multiple years, and I wish I could give you a, an easy answer. <laughs> I have tried to tease out of the documents the best that I can textual evidence of what's coming first, because... I haven't seen any historical documentation, either letters or journal entries or whatnot, that answers that question definitively. Mm, okay. So it really is dependent upon the texts themselves. What do the texts say about their origin and, and kind of the relationship? And I just don't know. Okay. Uh, I have my guesses. I tend to think that the Egyptian language project is coming first, but I can't definitively say that that okay. is the yeah. case. Unfortunately, we kind of have to go with a... We don't know. We don't know yet. Yeah, which is frustrating for sure, yeah. uh, a lot of people, myself included. <laughs> but for the Joseph Smith papers, we felt quite strongly that we should indicate what we know and not indicate things that we don't know. And that question, that particular question, mm. I just didn't feel, um, both me and Brian Hoglid, my co-editor, co-volume editor, we didn't feel comfortable in coming down one way or the other. So it sounds like there's a big question mark there, and but... On the one hand, that's frustrating, as you say. We, yeah. we would like to have clear answers. But on the other hand, it's kind of exciting because that leaves uh, open the possibility for future work, for future scholarship yeah. to try to tease this out. And now that we have all the documents here in one handy volume, anybody who wants to try to take a crack at this can now look at it. And uh, I'll, I'll be the first one to shake your hands. Uh, go forth <laughs> and figure, figure this out, out for me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll have like a contest, right? Just yeah, a papers contest who can figure out the code, right? <laughs> that's pretty good. Well, okay, that's... Uh, that's a good, healthy perspective, I think, to just be honest about what we don't know, what we do know, and leave the question marks where they belong and, and invite people to, to study more. Again, to study it out in their mind, if yep. you will, right? Yep. To continue on this theme. We mentioned a couple times that 
of course, the Book of Abraham has its three facsimiles with it. Yeah. Uh, again, that's what most Latter-day Saints think of when they think of the Book of Abraham. I know Latter-day Saint kids like to sometimes color them during sacrament meeting. Yep. The facsimiles are rather controversial, though, because here we have seemingly straightforward Joseph Smith's attempts to render the Egyptian language canonized with his book of scripture. We have the images and then the explanations or the translations of the facsimile. Yep. And in facsimile 3, we even have these hieroglyphic characters in the facsimile and in the explanations, it will say things like, this is King Pharaoh as indicated in the characters above his hand and so forth. Yeah. Have you uncovered any insight into the explanations for the facsimiles, maybe who wrote them, who was responsible for them? Did any of the explanations come out of the Egyptian language project? Yeah, this is a big question and something that scholars need to do a lot more work on. The explanations to the facsimiles do survive in manuscript form. They're in Willard Richards' handwriting. Willard Richards was a clerk, a scribe, personal secretary to Joseph Smith in Nauvoo. The manuscripts would have been created in Nauvoo. He was not working in Kirtland. As you say, some of the facsimiles uh, give the translation of the characters. And once again, we should make clear, those characters do not mean that. They're, right. it, it's in, in The Egyptologists will recognize those as other writings. Willard Richards may have written in these, but it's quite likely that Joseph Smith is the one producing this. This follows mm -hmm. other patterns of Mormon record keeping where Joseph Smith is dictating texts to other people. He didn't like to write down himself. It's also quite likely or possible that Joseph Smith is delegating this responsibility to Richards. He often says to his clerks, hey, I need you to write this, and there's less oversight to it. That would kind of surprise me, though, for this. This seems to be a fairly uh, important matter. So I I would imagine that this is Joseph Smith himself dictating the text to Willard Richards himself. Mm -hmm. The question then is, what do we make of those translations? Because right. that's a yeah. fairly obvious translation, and that's where questions still are being raised. I think that going back to my earlier analogy about the parent praying for the sick child, we have the real possibility that through historical evidence that Joseph Smith believes that he is translating from the papyri. There's enough evidence to suggest that he really does think that. Well, I think that members of the church today might recognize their own personal revelatory experience. They might receive a revelation about a particular problem, and through that revelation they receive an answer. But in addition to receiving an answer, they also make certain assumptions about the revelatory process. Right. So Joseph Smith received revelation for the text of the book of Abraham. He may have through that revelation, also made assumptions about where that text came from. It could be that Joseph Smith assumed that he was translating from the papyri when he was not, in fact, mm. translating from the papyri. We don't know in the revelatory process how much of this is Joseph Smith and how much of it is the divine. Sometimes we think of Joseph Smith as a fax machine for the Lord. The divine stenographer for yeah, God. Sort yeah, of, yeah. That, that God has this text pushes a button and it goes through Joseph Smith completely and totally unfiltered. I think in some cases that might be true. Members of the church can believe that, yeah, that, that could be true, that might happen. I think, though, we also need to recognize that there is an agency factor in translation, in revelation, in, in prophethood. Joseph Smith often gave sermons to members of the church that when he was speaking as a man, he was just speaking as a man. When he was speaking as a prophet, he was speaking as a prophet. Sometimes those two, though, blend together. Mm. And the line becomes fuzzy where, where yeah, that starts yeah. and ends. With these explanations in particular, how much of that is inspired? How much of that is Joseph Smith's cultural assumptions? We don't know. And that is 
where people can often say, well, it's easy. Joseph Smith is a fraud. Right. He claimed this translation. It's a very cynical, skeptical yeah. view yeah. of it. Right. If you have certain assumptions about translation, I can see where you could make that statement. But I think this is where we, we as a church really need to understand translation and the revelatory process a little bit better. It's a little bit more messy than right. we make it out in Sunday school. And that's okay. Yeah. It can be messy. It can be complex. It can be nuanced. Just like Joseph Smith is not a fax machine for God, members of the church should not be an automatic receptor for revelation. They should get a, a testimony of this. They should wrestle with what revelation is, both institutionally and personal. They should really try to tackle what it means to be a church that believes in continuing revelation. I think it would be beneficial to once again just mention for our listeners the Gospel Topics essay on translation and historicity of the Book of Abraham, because it touches on the facsimiles, and it touches on the, the explanations Joseph Smith gave for the facsimiles. And in addition to drawing from the work of some Latter-day Saint scholars, Egyptologists and others who have looked at this question, it leaves the same question open that you just posed. We need to be careful what we assume about what Joseph Smith was doing when he was, quote-unquote, translating these documents. Yeah. Uh, we need to be careful about our own assumptions and these sorts of things. And so I think uh, that's, a, again, a healthy perspective that you've given us here, one where we don't need to just jump to the conclusion that Joseph Smith's an automatic fraud, he's just sort of bungling this whole thing and it's all just nonsense. Uh, we can have this faithful perspective, but also nuance our ideas or our understanding of this. On that note, I guess, maybe we can just wrap up with a more sort of open-ended question. So, Robin, we've talked about what we do know. We've talked about what the documents, what insights the documents do give us. And we just mentioned right now what we still don't know. Yeah. Is there anything else that's, like, surprising that you learned from these manuscripts? Any sort of new insights or aha moments that you had? And what other questions are still unanswered that we can look into with these manuscripts? What further controversies still need to be explored? What questions need to be answered? Uh, what have you uncovered in your research on this? As you probably know, when you do a piece of scholarship, there's usually more questions than answers when you're done with that project. We could spend hours and hours about the questions I have about the Book of Abraham. And I think that's okay. The volume that we have presented, the Joseph Smith Papers, is meant to prompt questions. If our volume prompts additional scholarship, then as I said earlier, that's a success for us. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be happy to read all of that stuff. There are some small things that really surprised me that were really exciting. There are probably only two or three people in the world that get excited about things like this, that, as excited as I do. There are some textual clues that we were able to uncover that are really interesting. For instance, there are two manuscripts of the Book of Abraham that seem to have been concurrently created. And one of the pieces of evidence for that is that two different scribes wrote on two different pieces of paper, and that those two different pieces of paper were at one point a single piece of paper. Mm. So they tore that in half, gave it to two different scribes, and then they're creating this text concurrently, it appears like. And that, to me, that's fascinating. Things that just get me super excited, and things that people that know me kind of roll their eyes and say, man, you are the biggest nerd ever. I think another interesting thing, and it's been a bit of a controversy, but uh, I, I feel fairly confident in saying that uh, the Book of Abraham was translated in two different periods, two different mm. batches. So the first portion uh, was translated in Kirtland in 1835, and then when they published that, Joseph Smith in his journal said, I now commence translating the Book of, Ma Book of Abraham for the next issue, the next Times and Seasons issue. And to me, that, with other evidence fairly definitively says that Joseph Smith translates the Book of Abraham 
in Kirtland, and then in Nauvoo. And that, that to me is quite interesting to see that there is kind of this prolonged thinking, exposure, uh, understanding of, of the Book of Abraham on Joseph Smith's part. One of the questions that I still have, and I, th- I think that scholars of Mormon history really need to tackle, is the reception history of the Book of Abraham. How are the individual members of the church reading this? How are non-Mormons reacting to this? We touch a little bit about that in the volume, but various scholars have commented that scriptures are meaningless unless you have a community that believes in them. And I think from the very beginning, Joseph Smith presents the Book of Abraham to a believing audience, that the individuals who worked on them, the the first uh, people that were really excited to see the mummies and the papyri, they believed that these were sacred objects, that they were sacred texts. And I would love to understand that. Just as the textual record helps us understand more about Joseph Smith as translator, we need to do better in understanding how the members of the church were reading those translations. That's great. I think that's more than enough material <laughs> for, for people to have lots of fun with in the future. Some great research avenues. And as you say, there's nothing wrong with bringing up more questions and answers with yeah. this sort of scholarship. That's, uh, that's what scholars do, and that's what makes our jobs exciting and fun. And, uh, yep. and so I think, that's, I think that's wonderful. Just to wrap up then, before we sign off here, I'll just put in a little plug for another episode of LDS Perspectives podcast. In this discussion, we've talked exclusively about the, the modern history of the Book of Abraham. We have yep. uh, the manuscripts of the Book of Abraham, the, the grammar and alphabet documents, and Joseph Smith's role as a translator. For our listeners who may be interested in the ancient historical side of things, the ancient papyri and their context and so forth, they can listen to the episode that Lara Hales did with John Gee a while back, where he, a, a very prominent Latter-day Saint Egyptologist, who has also looked at the historicity of the Book of Abraham and the papyri and so forth. So... Um, we have sort of a one-two punch there for our listeners. There you it's go. great that we now have uh, Robin here on the show to uh, tell us more about the modern history, and uh, there's lots of fun material there to work with. Robin, thank you so much for being honest with the show. Let me just, again, commend you and Brian Hagley for this wonderful volume you've done. And as you said, I hope that many people have many wonderful questions that they draw out of this for future research, and we're very grateful for the insights and answers you have given us here today. Stephen, thank you. I, I've appreciated the time, and uh, this is a, a great volume. Uh, I'm a bit biased, but I, I hope that as members and scholars read it, they can uh, better appreciate Joseph Smith as a religious figure and translator. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.